Hello, and welcome to Lens, the podcast brought to you by British Screen Forum. My name is John Gisby, and I'm delighted that you're listening. Welcome to episode two of Lens, the new podcast from British Screen Forum, with me, John Gisby. Our role is to bring together industry leaders, policymakers, and politicians to frame the debate about the future of film, TV, games, and digital content in the UK. If that sounds interesting, there's a lot more information at britishscreenforum.co.uk, where you can find out about our upcoming public events and apply for membership. And do also please get in touch with any feedback on what we could do better in these podcasts and with ideas for future guests. Best way to do that is to drop us an email at lens at britishscreenforum.co.uk. In this first series, we're focused on the past, present and future of public service broadcasting. And we started in our first episode with an in-depth conversation with John Whittingdale MP. In this next episode, we hear from David Abraham, who was Chief Exec of Channel 4 from 2010 to 2017. With privatisation now firmly on the government's agenda, David reflects on Channel 4's remit as a publicly owned and commercially run broadcaster, and why he believes that who owns it is so critical to the role it can play as a public service broadcaster. It's great today to be joined in the podcast by David Abraham, uh, founder and group chief executive of Wonderhood Studios from 2018. Uh, in the context of the day, particularly uh, CEO of Channel 4 from, uh, from 2010 to 2018. Um, David, thank you. Thank you for agreeing to, to join us today and, and talk this through. Thanks for having me. Um, going back through your career, it strikes me you bring uh, an extraordinary, probably rare and almost certainly unique set of perspectives in their, in their kind of... Uh, joined upness. Um, initially starting in advertising, co-founder of St. Luke's Creative Agency, stints on both sides of the Atlantic, essentially in subscription channels through Discovery, back to the UK to do more subscription through UK TV, and then into public service remit through Channel 4, and then back, almost bringing all of those things back into, uh, back, back together, plus data uh, in Wonderhood. Um, so, pretty rare combination of both UK and US experience, and pay and uh, ad-funded, um, and public service and kind of pure commercial. I can't think anybody else who has that 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 com- kind of complete package. I don't know if that's fair. Totally unplanned. <laughs> <laughs> the serendipity. It's the serendipity of how careers work. It's the way out. it happened. Yeah, it's the jungle gym career. Um, I'm going to start with the easy one. Uh, lots of definitions of this, but from your point of view, you've been a big thinker about this and lots of speeches over the years. What is public service broadcasting and why does it matter? It's a, it, for me, it was something I discovered um, in two ways. One, as a, as a child and as a young person in an unconscious way, being aware that some of my education and my understanding about the world was being informed by the BBC and then Channel 4 as a, as a, as a student. Um, and then I went into the kind of realities of earning a living and found myself in primarily profit optimizing businesses in advertising and then in broadcasting and then um, in in a sort of interesting hybrid world when I became the chief executive of UK television in 2007 effectively half my board was was the BBC and half my board was Virgin Media so I was for the first time aware of how uh, content was being created and managed in 
partially in a public service sphere. And then obviously when I went to Channel 4, I then was operating in a commercially funded but remit delivering uh, organization. So I, 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 I kind of have experienced those different flavors and those different models. And I really enjoyed each of them in different ways. They all have their strengths. They all have their um, clarity to them. But as I suppose I went through my career, and particularly in my seven and a half years at Channel 4, I came to appreciate the interrelationship between creative risk, uh, cultural capital, um, and um, I suppose business. How do those, th those things interact? Um, and it became very clear to me that there was something very distinctive and very precious about the public service model that Britain had evolved over many, many decades that was linked to freedom of speech, freedom of expression, and ultimately linked to democracy. Um, and I think we can, and I'm sure we will, touch on each of those different aspects in this conversation, but I think we arrive at a, a really acute and important time to restate the importance of the existence of this model. This model doesn't exist to dominate the market. It never did, and I don't think it never intended to. It has been rightly competed against and competed with by other models. You know, in the earlier part of my TV career, Sky competed aggressively for the space, contested the space of, for attention for the UK viewer with a different model. And that was laced with an ideological attack on public service broadcasting that was really informed as much by the need to win market share as it was probably with an aspect of politics and ideology. I think we've now had arrived quite clearly, I mean, paradoxically, at a point in which those models have flourished and succeeded and sit alongside the public service models. and frankly, are no longer put at risk by the existence of those public service models. What worries me about the position we're in right now is that that's not enough. We now have to effectively dismantle the models in order to remain, win the remaining market share for those alternative models, whether or not they're controlled by uh, owners outside the UK and without any regard for the impact on our democracies and on our freedom of speech and on our, on our independence of thought. Because on that journey that I went on from the UK to the US, I worked with many brilliant people, but one of the things that was always very apparent to me was the uh, centralized control of the corporate systems that I was working for and the fact that there were always absolute limits to editorial freedom of speech. Editors in media corporations that are controlled in America are more like star football players. They come on the pitch, they're paid quite well, they have fixed-term contracts. If they create hits, they can renew their contracts, and if they don't, they're, they're moved on. It's a very different model to the model in, in the UK, which is um, codependent with theatre, with publishing, with journalism in a very, very different way, and where I think freedom of speech operates with a greater premium in terms of how the television space has evolved. And my great fear is that people underestimate the consequences of effectively not having editorial 
kind of final say, which currently Channel 4 and the BBC do on behalf of their workforces and on behalf of their audiences. And that's the thing that we're at risk of losing in this uh, current set of changes that are being proposed. So we're going to come on to a whole range of topics, including, I suspect, privatisation uh, possibilities for Channel 4. Um, just before we, we, we start to tackle those, uh, PSB essentially is a public policy intervention. It's a, it's a, I think you've described it as being a sort of an enlightened set of, of deliberate decisions from policymakers and regulators and industry professionals supported by the public to achieve a certain set of outcomes. If you look at it from an audience point of view, and you're looking at the shows themselves, you love the shows. You don't necessarily appreciate that underneath that there's, a, that, that there's been a philosophy, a set of decisions taken about what those shows should be, which ultimately control a remit and ultimately direct resources and decision-making as to what shows those are. If you're sitting in the signal box in number 10 and you've got all these different public policy levers to pull, what is the one, what is the one marked public service broadcasting? And, and when you pull it, what do you want it to achieve? Well, I would like to think, and I certainly, my understanding is in previous governments, there's been a real appreciation of the ability of this particular part of our culture and of our creative economy to um, serve the greater goals of the country in terms of the, 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 kind, of, the kind of culture that we want to be part of and the, and the kind of country we want to be building for the for future gener generations and that um, some of those kind of core precepts around um, freedom of speech around um, being being in well informed and uh, and encouraging debate and also educating in a broad and general sense and allowing for the serendipity of that knowledge to be free-flowing which of course is what a live schedule ultimately is. You, you, you don't know what you don't know, but you will stumble upon things as we did as we were growing up, which really do open your minds to new worlds in a way that you absolutely didn't expect. And that enlightened form of curation, which these institutions have been good at evolving and developing and innovating around in terms of means of distribution, that core, um, that core value to the country, which is linked to our education system, it's linked to the security of our communities, it's linked to the health of our minds, all of those things, I would hope, are the backdrop to how then the policymakers think about uh, how technology and distribution is changing in order for, that, for those core values to be kept healthy. Um, and I think Britain's done a very good job and you know, yourself and others have been involved in thinking about how to take that and get it distributed in a streaming environment or a, a more of a, discover, a blended discovery environment with a, with a live environment. Those two things coming together, um, Britain's been very good at, at keeping, keeping ahead. Um, and so I would, wouldn't underestimate the ability of these industries to keep Britain kind of on top and competitive. Um, and I, and I, I feel very strongly that um, we should be convincing these decision makers that um, the proposals that we have for how we think this system can be uh, preserved and strengthened for the future should be front and centre, as I think they were when other innovations occurred. My understanding 
obviously I was a student at the time, my understanding of how Channel 4 was formed was, a, was an informed debate that happened over a five to ten year period as people became aware that more spectrum would become available, there was space for a new channel, but what would the purposes and values of that channel be and should they be to perpetuate what was at the time a duopoly between the BBC and ITV? Um, and that informed debate led to the creation of a, of a model that worked in a distinctive and different way, um, but which um, deepened and strengthened some of those cultural um, uh, uh, benefits to the country, whilst at the same time stimulating an economic set of benefits as well, which are still running to this very day. You've talked in the past about the conversations you had as you were coming into Channel 4 with, I think, Jeremy Isaacs and Anthony Smith and various others who've been part of that sort of founding lobbying crew, if you like. Um, and what struck me about uh, some of the things you've, you've, you've spoken of is that it was very conscious. It was very calibrated. It was a calibrated intervention. I'm sure it had unintended consequences, both good and bad. But, it, but the sense of this being a policy objective, this was an intervention to create something new, completely a unique model anywhere in the world still, I think. Um, and... Uh, one of the things that, that, that flows from that has been Channel 4's role in the creative economy uh, as, a, as a kind of stimulus for creativity and independent producers. I think you once described it as being a, a, a ventricle of the UK's creative heart, which is a particularly vivid metaphor. Um, to what extent uh, the, the, the thinking about how the creative economy works and the reason um, some would say that there is a lot of inward investment now from uh, particularly to high-end premium TV is essentially because at its heart there's been this kind of mechanism of all these different remits operating, um, which has both created big companies but also brought small companies uh, into fruition through through Channel Four's intervention. Was that uh, how conscious was that in terms of the commissioning decisions that that were that were happening? And a theme that I think we'll come back to: how different would that have been if you were a purely commercially focused CEO? in terms of understanding what the remit was and, and, and the day-to-day -day impact that had on decision-making? So I think, it, I think it did feel like a, a, um, a very different experience to be helping to lead an organisation that essentially at the end of the year had to break even but had scale because you really could take a lot more risks over many other many genres. A lot of uh, media brands tend to be strong in one or two genres. You've got to remember that Channel 4 was very strong in factual, very strong in news, very, became very strong in aspects of live sport like the Paralympics. Um, all of those things, you had the ability to do things which were not profit maximizing. And, you know, again, one of the great privileges was to see whether it was directors or actors or small companies going from uh, those early experimental opportunities that the channel could give it because of. Uh, this not-for-profit model, both in terms of commissioning but then scheduling and marketing shows, through to then watching those companies being having the opportunity when they were sufficiently mature to then go onto the global stage and make shows for Netflix and become part of the broader, bigger, consolidated economy that is the natural cycle of companies in, this, in these industries. So it, it, it was a model that worked powerfully in the 80s and 90s and it was a model that continued to work uh, in, under uh, my leadership um, and I, it has continued to, to work to this day. You can see um, actors and, and producers and writers who are still getting now their very first breaks and unless you put those seeds in 
and give those people an opportunity to see a project through and then get it out onto the airwaves, then they're never going to have the opportunity to work on that broader um, global stage. So I think we should look at our creative economy from the point of view of those voices and authors and, and talents as much as we are rightly providing opportunities for the resources, the as it were, the craft uh, base of our industry to work directly for Tom Cruise's latest movie or the next Star Wars. The government, I think, has been quite right to incentivize that capacity in the creative economy. It provides a lot of jobs, a lot of opportunity, but we shouldn't do that and be blind to the equally important aspects of when our writers and our performers and uh, our filmmakers uh, and our journalists are telling stories that matter to our audiences in, in the UK. Um, and I've never argued for this model to be, to overtake other models. I've always argued for the strength of a mixed economy being uh, interdependent with itself. And if you, if you were to shrink, I think the question I would like to ask some people who are driving the government agenda at the moment is, how small do you want public service broadcasting to become? When will you be content? And my fear and my suspicion is, it is when it is zero. It, makes a ze it has no contribution. And we are operating like America or like Asia, where public service broadcasting practically doesn't exist. Then I think they will be content, but obviously, um, I don't think the rest of the country will feel remotely pleased with that outcome. <coughs> I think it strikes me there are, there are kind of two different dimensions that work simultaneously here. One is around public service broadcasting as a, as a policy intervention and the social benefits it brings. In return for getting the licenses and the prominence and all the rest of it, there is a contract, a set, almost a literal contract, with a license and a, a set of statutory obligations that says, as a result, you've got to create the content that does this. Equally, there's another set of dimensions, which is around industrial strategy. So um, some of the big investors, the studios and all the rest of it, are perhaps less likely to take creative risks on very early stage creative talent, but the public service broadcasters um, provide the on-ramp for that talent to then go off and do greater things. And the symbiosis of those things, it sounds as though from your point of view, works. It, and, and it's very efficient. I remember talking to a major uh, head of a studio in the US when, when I was helping um, to develop Film 4's model and they couldn't believe how many um, high potential projects Film 4 had and was developing that then fed into the studio system in America given the amount of money that we were spending. We were spending um, a, a, around 20 to 25 million a year on, on developing Film 4 projects um, and this particular studio head had spent 100 million and had nothing to show for it. So we were incredibly efficient uh, and prudent with how we were um, seeding intellectual capital in the independent film industry, um, which had, you know, a disproportionate effect and impact on uh, on the, the overall film industry and also on on Britain Britain's impact on, in the in the wider world. So again, it was important to me to uh, argue at the time that that is as valuable as having studios full of. Uh, franchise movies being produced in London. When you look back over the, I mean, the BBC, 100 years old, public service broadcasting, as an idea, arguably 100 years old, I think Reith was probably the first person to use broadcasting, which I think prior to that had been a sort of farming term that literally was broadcasting, but it's sort of scattering seeds as widely as possible so that they germinate. Um, 
in the conversations we've had uh, as part of this series, there's, there's sort of two different models that pop up. Broadly aligned with sort of political positions, but, but sort of more philosophical than that. One is that public service broadcasting is essentially a sort of social contract. It comes out of the 50s and 60s. It's almost, it's, it's a public intervention. It's a bit like the National Health Service. Uh, the conversation with David Putnam that we had, he sort of described it as almost a National Health Service of the mind. If you can justify it for physical health, then this is a, a similar intervention. Um, the other is the, a market failure argument. So a country the size of the UK will never produce the range and scale of content that you'd probably want in all genres. News, kids, those are the two that always pop up. I'm sure there are others as well. So therefore, there's an intervention needed in the bits that the, bits that the market won't provide. Um, do those two models broadly sound right? And, and, and how have they, as, I mean, you've, you've been in the space 20 years or so. How have, they, how have they flexed based on the political zeitgeist at any given point in time? I actually find those models insufficient and, and unsatisfactory in terms of the subtlety of, of what's going on here. Um, there's a, an interesting... Um, economist Maria Mazzucato who talks about how much economic value is created by the universities of uh, various countries around the world and how much uh, research leads to commercially exploitable value in the broader economies of certainly America and, 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 and Europe, um, which, is, which underestimates the value of sort of public kind of goods and public investment, which takes in, in science in particular, decades to, to develop and, and can be exploited once it's kind of oven ready to go into the market. Um, so for, for me, the more interesting models, and we've seen this in the pandemic, haven't we? We've seen that there are certain things that business was critically providing in the pandemic, but governments <laughs> had to provide a plan and had to provide uh, a framework into which that is operating. So I personally think that it would be an exciting idea if the BBC and Channel 4 didn't exist in 2022 to imagine that they would be brilliant interventions in an environment in which we were concerned, for example, uh, in a post-Brexit Britain environment with a war on our doorstep in Europe to preserve the strength of our, uh, of our factually based news and current affairs uh, output that couldn't be manipulated by anyone um, at, at any point. Um, I think we would also be concerned to know that we could have a voice in the airways for our own people rather than have it necessarily uh, constructed for us by an owner in a foreign country or a foreign, foreign continent. So I, I actually see these interventions as being phenomenally modern. And I find the debates about the post-war contract, et cetera, really tiring and backward looking um genuinely i i i think there are there are there are a set of tropes that have been used intellectually to attack public service broadcasting because it had a very big footprint and there was market share to be gained for newspapers in the in, in the internet world and for um for you know other platforms to to win rightly win market share and they threw everything at it to get but for me, the interesting thing was to compare, say, James Murdoch when he did the McTaggart to James Murdoch when, when he was then arguing with much softer voice 
for the responsible attitude that Sky would take towards its interrelationships with the BBC when it was when um, when News Corp was was attempting to take over Sky. That was a very that was a very much more mature and rounded perception of a, of an ecosystem which actually works. And you know today's Sky's uh, interrelationships with the rest of the industry are far more sophisticated and mature than they were in those early days. But it's still the case that some people want to dig out those old arguments, um, which, are, which, are, which are completely outdated. Um, I hope we come on to this. The, the, the challenge is that without a new topography, for want of a better word, with linear broadcasting um, becoming less dominant as a means of, of consumption, with universality as a result, weakening as a result of that, and with the debate around PSB almost being synonymous with the debate about the future of individual institutions, it becomes quite hard to reinvent that. Not impossible, but it becomes quite hard. And in a sense, these, what, are these, what, these, what these conversations are trying to drive out is if we're clear what public service broadcasting was designed to achieve, then it, as the world changes and as audience expectations in technology changes, we can try and get the best possible outcome that delivers what we all thought we got in the past that we want to preserve but somehow get it delivered in new ways. But separating that out from the conversation about institutions and essentially broadcasting spectrum and, and technology becomes quite hard. I would very much agree with that. And, and I think the kangaroo moment was almost the critical moment where the industry had the potential to reset its means of distribution to collectively create the opportunity to deliver those ends in a new environment, as had happened although in a more slightly more chaotic way with Freeview, um, which we all remember didn't come out of some master plan. It came out of the fact that on digital went bust and the spectrum was available and uh, the public service broadcasters saw it as an opportunity to secure spectrum in a, an, in a digital world um, as digital switchover was, had been anticipated over a decade-long period of change. So I would agree sometimes change occurs in the combination of what what the macro trends are with opportunities that arise uh, in the moment. Um, and it certainly um, seems self-evident that the interoperability of streaming services um, needs to be improved on behalf of the UK viewers. But the market's already sort of leading us probably and pointing us towards that outcome. Um, because we are now heading into a cost of living crisis. Uh, subscription services are um, under pressure um, and there's going to be a, a reset. So you could look at it as quite an exciting and positive moment for that um, coming together to, to occur. And it certainly does seem to be the case that some of the kind of point scoring between the public service broadcasters has uh, abated in, in recent years, and everyone is now working harder, aka Brickbox and other initiatives, to um, to work out what that um, that platform might might look like. But I think we should we should look at um, initiatives like Freeview as, as an inspiration for a, a really critically important piece of um, of collaboration that led to a system that helped to protect the reach of public service broadcasting for a decade during a period of fundamental disruption, arguably greater than the one that we're going through now, which is a settling down between the limits of direct pay subscription models, direct to consumer pay subscription models, and 
the remaining legacy parts of, of broadcasting. Uh, interesting sort of side note as to how different the world might have been if Freeview had, in, had had encryption. Um, because at that stage, the whole the whole concept of universality and actually being able to switch services off if there'd been a default, uh, that that had been possible. Arguably, we'd, we'd be in a different place right now. Um, I want to sort of revert me a, a, a little bit to the remit. Um, one of the things that's been a constant over the last 20, 25 years or so of, of, uh, of the development of the, of the industry has been the presence of Ofcom. And Ofcom set up in 2003 uniquely, again, I think in terms of broadcast regulation, not only in terms of understanding content regulation and telecoms and distribution regulation in one place as part of it, but also an equal weight between citizen and consumer. So having the, having the, the responsibility to serve citizens, not just citizens with, with wallets. Um, and out of that comes remits, it comes licenses, backed up in Channel 4's case with statutory obligations as well. Uh, David Elstein, I mentioned him earlier, has written fairly recently around, if you actually look at um, the various license requirements that Ofcom has had and their ability to impose them over the course of, of 20 years, from looked at through his lens, successive licenses have essentially become watered down over time. The actual metrics around them become less and less relevant until ultimately, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but PSB sort of becomes a bit of a fig leaf. But from your point of view, how much did the day-to-day -day licenses from Ofcom bite on decision-making, resource allocation? How did they translate into commissioning briefs? Because in a sense, what people see from the outside is what you present in speeches and conferences and showreels, which is here is a whole range of content that ticks the sorts of Ofcom boxes around inform information and education and entertainment and range and quality and Britishness and distinctiveness and all the rest of it. How much of that is baked in upstream in the thinking and commissioning process? How much of that is attracting a certain set of commissioning talent who think that way? And how much of it is actually after the fact? Well, again, as we said earlier, when I arrived in 2010, it was the first time I was directly accountable to delivering a, a, a national uh, remit. And it was coming at a period where there had been a debate as to whether or not Big Brother had become too dominant on, on the Channel 4 schedules. And had there been an over-reliance, it was, it was described, I think, by Tim Gardham as a, an oak tree that had cast a very big shadow on the rest of the garden and things hadn't grown in a as interesting a way as the remit had um, had implored the, the, you know, the board to, to deliver on. So the decision had been made to cut that. So what did we do? Um, we very aggressively um, pushed that money into many more genres. So there were many more attempts at cracking comedy. Um, we increased uh, the, the amount of dispatches that we were doing and we set about developing um, opportunities to, to create the new returning series. I always said I'd rather have sort of five shows doing three million reliably over the year and coming back than something as big as Big Brother. In the end, um, we sort of did both because we developed lots of successful returning shows under Jay's le leadership and we also made big commercial plays like Formula One and, and towards the end Bake Off, which kind of uh, allowed us to sort of double down on on the innovation and the scale of those returning shows. Um, so in broad terms, Ofcom were holding us to uh, a, a, an agenda around diversifying the schedule and accelerating the pathways of new talent coming through 
and it allowed us to spend more money on film for and all the things that we we did during that during that period on a day-to-day basis it felt very real um we uh you know if you look i know that david elstein's has a curious hobby of studying the, the channel for um uh, annual reports but if you look at them um I, I would describe them in the opposite way to the way he does i think there's a, a huge amount of research that goes into being accountable on the hours and the spend but also on the public perceptions of each of the genres and as someone and you know I, i'm not aware that he has ever run a channel in in that accountable way when he was running channel five um inevitably the the license provisions and the remit were looser um, because it was understood that that was a profit um, optimizing uh, business and it was given certain obligations which you could argue had been watered down and the, the positioning of the news the timing of the news all all became lighter as time went on that is not the case with channel 4 news it's not the case with the number of dispatches it's not the case with the commitment to channel 4 it's not and it's not been the case under um, Alex's leadership in terms of sort of commitment towards nations and regions either, which has just all gone up and up and up. Um, inevitably, you can pick certain genres. You can talk about um, how many hours of children's programming, some, some things that were added in um, during subsequent licensing rounds, which um, I think in truth, we struggled to deliver on amongst all the other things that we were doing. Um, but they were, you know, pockets of challenges against a backdrop of a very considerable um, and consistent level of achievement in delivering, uh, in delivering against um, the remit. And there's, there was a sort of, I suppose, a, there was also a sense that if you didn't mean it, and uh, under, uh, you know, in the period I was at Channel 4, Ofcom would attend Channel 4 board meetings annually, and as CEO, I would have quarterly meetings, and then we would have... Jay and I would have editorial review meetings as well. So in terms of the cycle of the year, the, the, it's like the level of accountability um, the, and the level of feedback and then the annual review process, it was not um, an environment that you could in any way afford to take your eye off at all. Um, so it, it's kind of ironic to me to be to, to hear other people who've never sort of actually worked in that system comment on the fact that it, it's a fig leaf because it felt far from that. Um, from our point of view. I hesitate to put words at David's mouth. I'm not sure he called it a fig leaf. I think he was just sort of tracking yeah. um, uh, in his recent essay about the, 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 um, the purpose of Ofcom. And, and, and tracking I think it all is of those various metrics and yeah. going, well, at one stage it was the, the number of UK originations, another time it was the, the more The more relevant, the the more relevant um, trend is the extent to which ITV and Channel 5's remits have been watered down through um, consistent lobbying and renegotiation and probably sort of with a gun sort of half on the table around the consequences of not uh, of not loosening the, the the provisions and so they've definitely been watered down but it, it, ironically if you work at the BBC and you work at Channel 4 the opposite is the case the tide is going in the other direction and part of this let's let's call a spade a spade here it's partly commercial lobbying in favor of loading up the BBC and Channel 4 with as, with as heavy a remit as possible in order for it not to be competing commercially. Um, and and, and th that's as much of a motive as any real concern for sort of public good. And again, from your point of view, running a commercially funded channel, admittedly only needing to break even or, or uh, add to reserves, 
that commercial mix of um, stuff that frankly could be on any channel. Sports rights could be, could in theory be, be on any channel. I'm sure Channel Four would, would present them in a different way. Yeah. And then you try, you try, you try and find the a refreshing way of approaching um, subjects like the Paralympics, which which would not be profit maximising, but then doing Formula One with a brand new company, which we've helped to um, support and grow, and it recently has sold to Sony. So you're always looking for the bit of the remit that you can deliver to, even if you're doing something um, uh, commercial. But uh, but to see MPs pick things out of the schedule and say that this individual example, it's intellectually dishonest, um, because and, and, it, and it misrepresents the nature of a cross-subsidized schedule. Uh, and actually, one of the things that um, always really impressed me is that there's real art to doing that. You know, to, 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 be, to be pretty commercial and to, de and to develop a surplus through your ad sales in order to do an investigative report uh, that might take you two or three years, but w which will have immense public value, um, is a wonderful thing. It's an amazing thing, um, because you're really using the resources of the market to deliver um, something which the whole of society can benefit from. And it, it comes with so many paradoxes. I very often you'd, you'd, you've had adverts on Channel Four in prime time, um, and then maybe half an hour later there might be a, a Channel Four news or a dispatches that might be taking apart that company that owned that brand that had spent money with the channel. But somehow it was a space in which those two things could coexist because one was a public good, one was the kind of country we want to live in, society we want to live in. And the other was um, a, a trade on um, valuing people's attention and creating commercial impacts that advertisers could exploit. And I think we should um, wonder, <laughs> frankly, at the ability of, of the British system to provide such a, a, an offering. Not one that wants to dominate other players at all. It remains uh, not niche, but not, not dominant either. Um, and 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 it's it's a it's a brilliant way of uh, of bringing together uh, different different interests that we should do far more I think to 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 celebrate as something uniquely British and 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 very very um, and and which provides the kind of content that regularly not occasionally but regularly can be said to be uh, game changing in terms of how um, certain genres kind of innovate and move forward. You've talked at the, at the core of the remit, which you talked about um, on several occasions uh, while you're chief exec, um, the idea of a channel for getting its energy, which it historically always had done from the edges, from the kind of the fractures in society and bringing ideas from the, from the outside to the mainstream. Uh, similarly directing, I think a great quote, directing the, the, the creative potential of television towards stimulating cultural progress and change. And he talked, talked today around um, the nature of public discourse and the, and the kind of heart of political conversations. Um, how important is scale in that? Because one of the things that broadcasting has always produced is scale and reach and frequency. And as we go forward, as linear declines, that gets harder. Um, so as we think through what PSB and PSM need to evolve to, how much does scale matter? Um, and in that context, uh, how important is it to either sustain or reinvent broadcasting-like technologies that can reach that number of people? In other words, you could have, and, and, and at the heart of that question is then institutions, which do you need institutions at scale to be able to serve that? So I think scale is important. Um, 
and Channel 4 can still deliver scale to advertisers. It is still, you know, the weekly reach is still sufficient if you're a brand to launch a product and get, get your audience to know about it very, very quickly. And let's remember that the ROI, and it's been, been proven again and again and again, the ROI on television in building brand value is vastly superior to all other media. However, so the, you know, the incremental cost of getting another customer, if you invest in television, has been proven over all studies over decades to be far, far stronger than, than only spending your money in search, for example, or only spending your money on social. But of course, all brands need to do both. They need to build their brands and they need to activate against customers who are in the market right now. And it's a problem that's universal for everyone because audiences are fragmented across all media. So therefore, media plans have to be more layered and more sophisticated at bringing together those two objectives, building your brand as an advertiser and delivering activation. And so paradoxically, television still is very central to that, very, very central indeed, because it, ha it still has greater scale than any individual content channel on an alternative platform like YouTube or, or Snapchat or, or TikTok. Um, and therefore, um, television is more valuable than people have made it out to be to advertisers, to the economy. Um, I'm seeing this again and again in my business now where we work with digital first brands who activate using digital channels only for the first year or two of building up their customer bases and then they get then they look at the brand awareness stats and they're still in single digits they then go on tv not only do they see their brand awareness scores just go through the roof overnight and they see their sales go through the, <laughs> the roof overnight as well and they can't believe the efficiency of the roi and this is something which I have not heard one politician, and this is a conservative government, I haven't heard one politician speak up for the economic benefits of television as an advertising medium in the last five years, which is shocking. Because in a sense, they are doing nothing other than repeating the trope of whoever they've heard of last to say that the trajectory of linear television is to zero. This is utter, utter nonsense. Of course, what we have seen is um, a, an environment in which uh, linear audiences have stopped growing in aggregate, although, of course, they're growing in certain areas because some channels are doing better than others. Um, but we've seen quite a sophisticated evolution of VOD services, and we're now getting to a new equilibrium where the environment is now direct-to-consumer, AVOD, and, um, and, and free-to-air. Um, and it's, it's the inter interrelationship of those factors that are defining how the market's now settling. We're all consuming more content than ever before. It's just more layered and it's, and it's more fragmented. So to, to argue that um, effectively the, the television, the linear television model is bust is, is intellectually inaccurate and dishonest in my view. What, what, what the main broadcasters in the UK have succeeded in doing is diversifying their channels of distribution into streaming they are now materi a material proportion of the total. Um, and we are now also getting more transparency over the actual viewing scale of um, these platforms that everyone has led us to believe are now destroying and dominating everyone's attention. And, and curiously, we are finding that that is not the case, that the top 
20 or 30 programs in any one year within the UK. There's only three or four titles which come from a streaming service. And the fact that those streaming services are now, some of them going to be starting to take advertising, <laughs> levels the playing field yet again in terms of how uh, kind of is in a way comparable uh, these, um, these platforms will be. We all know that these platforms have been super competitive because they have driven uh, growth through vast amounts of debt and produced lots of very high quality content, which has driven a huge amount of subscription. But those of us who have sort of been around for long enough know that ultimately um, you still need ultimately to find a way of funding content in a way that's sustainable and where debt is under control. And so there's a, there's, a, there's a new medium and equilibrium that we are heading towards, which is far more nuanced and interesting than the one I think politicians are painting. Um, I'm going to try to draw several of those threads. We've several of those threads together. If, the, if both commercially and in terms of kind of the, the progressive policy agenda or the, the public service policy agenda, you need scale, because you need scale and impact, um, both to, to make the money, but also to have the social impact. If you look down the other, the other end of the telescope, um, UK broadcasters, in Four's case, um, whatever it is now, seven, eight hundred people at the core in the core business, competing against global players, streaming platforms with with enormous budgets. Even once those budgets are under control, they're still going to be enormous based on their on their direct consumer business. But there's, but there's if if Channel Four is working with today three hundred companies, that's probably twenty thousand people that are, of are course, kind yeah, of feeding I, I, into the ecosystem. Yeah. So there's, there's <coughs> quite a lot of firepower there. Um, and there's a, there's a, a, with this model, there's an opportunity to create ideas which can really break through um, from anywhere. And that's the wonderful thing about our business. It is, it is about scale at the distribution end, but it's not only about scale at the upstream inception end. And that, that's where we should, as a country, that is the scale that we are, we should focus on the bits we're really good at. We should not, just because we are not America, it doesn't mean to say we exit the market and just become a service provider. We can actually compete in the bit we're good at, which is the ideas bit and the originality bit. Completely agree with that. On the other hand, um, I think I remember reading that at, under your, on, on your watch, there were probably 100 or so technologists at Channel 4. Uh, not only doing all the core services like distributing feeds and, and getting things on, bounced off satellites, but also increasingly inventing in the, in investing in the data platform and in the, the underlying VOD platforms and product and user experience and all sorts of new muscles and skills, which we'll, which we'll come on to in a minute. That team is competing with teams, many, many factors as big in, uh, in the global streaming platforms. That's difficult to compete with simply on a, on a basis of, of, of kind of scale and resource. Uh, yes, it is, but let's also acknowledge that a lot of the tools are now kind of off-the-shelf <coughs> tools. The things that we did were the things that no one else had done before, like think through what a data strategy would be for a, a broadcast VOD service, um, how we would get registration to work, how would we use that behavioral data to improve the experience on an individualized basis. All of these things we, we focused on where we could make a difference with the resources that we had. And I love, I, you know, one of the things there's nothing wrong with, in a sense, a continual startup mentality uh, as part of your culture. Um, so, I, and I think, you know, there's only so many ways ultimately that we can improve the streaming, you know, the streaming experience. 
we sort of reached the outer limits of that, I think, now. I remember, quite rightly, in 2010, we were sit still sitting in rooms looking at buffering being the fundamental issue and what will the picture, picture quality be once you blew it up to a bigger scale. But, you know, the BBC does have scale, and they were solving many of those problems, as was Channel 4, with much lesser resources. My understanding is that Channel 4's streaming service actually got to market before the BBC. So it's not only about the number of heads. I think it's it's sort of where you direct those resources and the iterations that you're uh, open to, to to going through. And I'm, I'm not so, sh so sure now, okay, how is technology going to keep Netflix competitive? Is it to do with how they're going to use data to pick shows? Maybe at the margin, but I can't see that being a massive competitive advantage. Similarly, how is um, data going to help Amazon or Apple get to better shows. I think the, the, the tools, you know, you can throw more money at the wall. Yes, you can have higher budgets per hour. You can do all of those things. But that isn't the only thing that, that gets you to success. That's what makes this business brilliant. And it's also what makes the British bit of the business work really, really well because it's never had the same level of resource and indeed can contribute to projects that do have those vaster scales of resource through co-productions which we do we all do really really well but um, hopefully on our own creative terms enough of the time to, to make the most of the language the culture the education that we have here that's different to the rest of the world what was partly behind the question was um, if you look back over the last 10 years or so what have been the opportunities that have been missed we talked about kangaroo um, which I think everybody acknowledges and, and one or two others but is, would it be fair to say that um, sensible partnerships between the different PSBs uh, in the past have been difficult? And, and particularly in the context of the BBC, there's a, the, I remember reading somewhere there's sort of the idea that the BBC doesn't partner, they sort of partner to you rather than with you. Um, Some, and, sometimes. And the degree to which that's been hard. Yeah, sometimes, isn't I have a very... And, and, and sorry, what's behind that is the yeah. degree to which the, the, the ecology can solve some of the problems by working more closely together, or is that just institutionally hard and needs intervention from the outside? It, look, it is, it is hard because you've got incumbents who culturally and in institutional muscle memory have been dominant, and they're now adjusting to a less dominant environment, but that's you know, having to learn how to collaborate. An early example of a successful partnership was the one that I was involved in formulating um, between Channel 4 and UK TV on the advertising sales side, which for both institutions was very uncomfortable initially. Um, channel 4 had never represented any other channels in its sales house, and just the mechanics of working out how to just to do that mathematically wasn't very straightforward. But also uh, the BBC was for the first time creating a reliance upon another public service broadcaster for a very material amount of revenue into what was then BBC Worldwide. And so, but we worked at it. And, you know, you create relationships, you um, act um, in each other's best interests and you solve problems together and that got solved. So UKTV is a good example of where collaboration has worked, um, both at, and at the ownership level with Scripps and before that Virgin Media and Flextech. Um, so there have been successful collaborations. You know, um, BBC is a is a distributor to many production companies in the UK and has successful and important commercial relationships with them. 
Um, it invests in many of the independent companies that go on to do well through its own equity investments, as Channel 4 did with its growth funds. So in practice, on the ground, I don't think it's, um, it's impossible, but I think there has to be clear strategic outcomes and people need to work closely on the relationships and then stick to stick to agreements over long periods of time. I mean, I'm, my entry into broadcasting was informed by Discovery Networks' relationship with the BBC through a very long-term JV in which um, a lot of the BBC's most expensive programmes at the time, like um, Walking with Dinosaurs and, and Blue Planet, were funded through a partnership with Discovery that where obviously the investment could be shared across uh, US and global markets. Um, so I think all of these things are possible, but people have to build models that then work. And that BBC JV lasted well over a decade and was, you know, ran to four or five volumes. Uh, I remember it well. So that I, I, I think people have got to um, be very constructive and productive and innovative in how these partnerships can last and how value can be grown together and then shared together. Um, it can be done. Um, uh, history shows us enough examples of that. But it needs leadership. Um, and uh, the thing that depresses me about the environment we've been through in recent years is that because of the relentless um, undermining of the principles of the model, the leadership and management of these institutions is mostly distracted in a defense mode. Um, and therefore, the thing that they're actually employed to do, which is to drive innovation, build these new models, build new shows, build new breakthroughs, um, it, it, energy is sapped away from doing that by the relentless nonsense of the political agenda and the uh, and, and the agenda around um, certain parts of the press that um, just constantly play games with the people who are leading these organisations. Um, and you know, given the standard and quality of leadership we have in this country at the moment and where it's at, the fact that these institutions are in the position that they are is outrageous. You know, we should be just waking up and saying, enough, what the hell are we doing defending the principle of the existence of the BBC? Because it, it's so mealy-mouthed what's being said of, oh, we, we believe in the BBC, but we don't believe in a license fee. We really believe in Channel 4's remit, but we think we're going to privatise it. This is intellectual dishonesty of the highest, highest order. We just like, stop. Let's, let's come together and have a different kind of conversation about the level of collaboration that's going to be required to remain competitive. The remaining competitive bit isn't the bit I worry about. <laughs> it's the undermining of the model. It's, the, it's taking these models apart to zero that I really worry about. And so, you know, both these institutions are constantly in a defensive, self-justifying position as opposed to having the opportunity to genuinely move forward and put forward a vision for uh, what the future looks like. I actually think that the hybrid model that um, Channel 4 have, have, have tried to put in to the marketplace is really worthy of proper examination. Uh, and I'm quite sure that the models that the BBC are talking about equally um, but they're never given the space because everything is, the debate has become so one-sided. And yet, at a time when we have a government that um, seems so um, dispiritingly unconcerned with the consequences of meddling with the system. We've got to touch on privatisation. 
the, the current proposals. Um, one of the things that uh, we've done as, as part of the research for this series is, is gone back and reread the, the Ofcom PSB reviews. And every five years they, they pipe up and essentially tell the same story, which is not sure what the license fee is, is intellectually sustainable over the long run. Channel 4 looks, um, looks as though it's on borrowed time. Great, great intervention at the time, but a, a bit of an anachronism now. Uh, and ITV and Channel 5 remits no doubt get watered down, but for the time being it's all a bit shaky, but it's all probably okay, so let's leave it another five years. Um, there's a temptation that you uh, you overestimate the potential impact of something in the short term, but, but underestimate it in the long term. Now, from what, you, from what you've said earlier, um, there is the still robust linear business model, both ad-funded and, and, uh, and subscription, but the trends are definitely coming down. Where do they stop? Uh, and, and what is the viable business model at that stage? And what is the critical mass there that can still compete in a meaningful way, and going back to the earlier conversation, and still deliver on the universal universality and the, and the public outcomes and all the rest? The government's put forward a proposal about Channel 4. Um, uh, both in terms of its recent comments, um, John Whittingdale's comments at, at the RTS, uh, I think last September. I mean, the starting point, do you accept the, 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 the kind of the position that over the medium to long term, there is a structural problem in the amount of revenue that would be available for four and therefore the, its ability to, to sustain itself at critical mass and not need an intervention in terms of money from somewhere else? Uh, no, um, unless it stops innovating, which it won't. Um, no one has a right to exist in perpetuity. We don't as individual human beings and no institution uh, has a right to exist um, as a guarantee. Um, Channel 4 has existed for 40 years. It's never needed a government bailout. It's been through um, you know, the dot-com crisis, the 2008 crisis, it went through 9-11, it just went through a pandemic. It has no debt, or very, you know, no, practically no debt. Um, and it has never needed a bailout. So the concept that it, you know, that there's a, a granny in Stockport that's exposed to the theoretical risk that it's going to go bust is utter nonsense. Um, but it has survived because it has kept innovating. It's kept innovating in its programming and it's kept innovating in its product proposition and in how it engages with advertisers. Um, it has always led the way, and as long as it keeps leading the way in small, medium, and large ways, um, then it will not require an intervention of this kind. This is, in my view, not being driven primarily by concern to strengthen the PSP system, which it is dressed up as. It's, um, at the most benign end, some theoretical argument that we need na national champions. And that if Channel 4, for example, was um, to become part of ITV, then, in effect, we'd create a bigger national champion in the form of a combined entity, and that would be good for the PSB system. Um, I think it's wrong-headed, um, uh, because the downside risk for the indie sector, and indeed for advertisers, who would then be dealing with a practically monopolistic slash duopolistic ad sales environment in the UK, are far greater than the status quo. And so for me, the deafening silence in the white paper around impact analysis, which is scandalous for something this important. You've got the creative economy of the UK producing more jobs, more GV than uh, any other sector, and you are removing some of these Jenga bricks 
at the same time as going out the previously licensed fee, I think it's just reckless. Um, if we were doing a proper impact analysis of what was going to happen to Channel 4 in a privatised setting, and by the way, some people seem to think it's kind of like a kind of tell sudded moment where it's, it's going to be IPO'd. I don't think it, Channel 4 will be IPO'd. I don't think it'll be become independently privately owned. I think it's much more likely to be a, a bit of a carve-up. Um, it'll be ITV, it'll be Sky or Five, or at at, at the outer edges, it could be some private equity play that will lead to a consolidation down the line. Um, all of those outcomes come with very significant risk to the industry, which the government has done nothing to set out. So as MPs are asked to vote on this in Parliament, what are they actually voting for? Because they're voting blind. That's what they're being asked to do. They're not being asked to vote on an informed, costed, impact assessed set of outcomes and indeed what intrigues me about what happens were it to be voted on and passed through parliament is what happens then is the government are they voting on a proposal whereby the government is going for the best price with the loosest remit or the best remit at whatever price um, again none of that is set out so if you're a private buyer and you don't you don't have to be Einstein to work out who they're likely to be, and investors will be looking at this from every different angle. Um, there'll be there's a, there's a there's a big black hole in the centre of the assessment of what of what's going on here. Um, so that they, they've they've basically made a vague set of assumptions about sustainability and audience trends, many of which you could debate. Um, you don't you know it's, it's not like we go around saying every institution in the country needs to be able to prove that it will exist in 10 years' time, otherwise it'll have its license removed. It's absurd. That's not how business operates. Business has to prove itself every year um, or every quarter. So I do think any institution, including Channel 4, is vulnerable if it fails to innovate. If it keeps innovating at or ahead of the market, um, then it has a right to exist and a right to succeed. It will need to keep innovating. It will keep needing to lean into digital. Um, but it's been doing that. Um, and it continues to do that. And the routes of digital revenue are now very, very material. And the amount of digital revenue growth is very, very material. So um, it, it feels like the people who are actually qualified to manage and judge this are being ignored. And the people who are coming from outside the industry are telling the industry that they have a concern about its sustainability because, quote-unquote, they're worried about exposure to the taxpayer. It's, it's, it's just dishonest and untrue. I'm going to ask a devil's advocate question. So um, uh, we've talked about the, the, the pressures on linear, and despite the innovation, the, the, the amount of commissioning budget in real terms um, for, for the content uh, has certainly gone down over, the, over the, the last 20 years or so. If there was a Nesta solution and a magic wand that actually said, here is, uh, it's so no change in ownership, but actually here is a significant endowment to solve some of the potential medium to long-term problems and give financial stability and security as an intervention. If you were now in the driving seat, presumably you'd know what to do with that in terms of a capital infusion and you'd welcome that. Is that fair? Well, I mean, we can all wave <laughs> I a realize, magic wand. I realise yeah, it's, 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 like it's an esoteric question. Yeah, I, I appreciate what, that. I mean, but it does lead somewhere in a second. Yeah, I mean, ironically, Channel 4 has never 
started with an endowment. It started with some spectrum and, um, and a levy on ITV's revenue and then off it, off it went. Um, I'm a great believer in, in sort of cutting your cloth uh, <laughs> and, and innovating within the framework that you're, you're operating uh, under. Um, look, I think everyone wants to see a Channel 4 that's producing hits and, um, and creating careers and winning Oscars. Um, and there is a space for that. It was never designed to be market dominating. It was always designed to be punching above its weight in a very sort of British way. Um, and even if you could do the calculation against inflation to say that the amount of firepower that's available is lessened, it's still not insignificant. It's still uh, you know, bringing in over a billion pounds worth of revenue um, it's delivering still around 10% of uh, audience, but much more importantly for advertisers, around a third of the commercial impacts that are available for the UK. These are not insignificant assets. So to say that um, it isn't as much as it would have been relative to the rest of the market 20 years ago is self-evidently the case, but it isn't, it isn't lacking in economic and cultural impact today. And this is after the most sort of relentless amount of competition. I mean, I remember being in a room in 2001, 2002, where there was a debate at the RTS about whether Channel 4 would exist by 2010. And 2010 was the year I took over. And um, there was another debate that just happened about should Channel 4 exist as an independent entity? Should it be fused with the BBC or Sky at that point? And we said, no, let's cut our cloth and, and carry on doing what we're doing. And in that time, you know, thousands of jobs and hundreds of career opportunities for creative people have continued to, to, to uh, benefit the, the British nation, which would otherwise not have been the case if it had been sold or uh, combined with another enti entity at that point, because it would have had to have been accountable to different purposes. Quite legitimate, quite sensible purposes, but just different. So my question is, is to turn it around the other way and say, why would you want to get rid of that now when it is still delivering material amounts of benefit? Um, let it continue to prove that it continue to continue to do that. And if, if it can't, you know, you should, you should change the leadership or change some things in it, do something about it to, to make it successful. But the, this decision to fundamentally change its, its operating model um, for me, it, it, it's having your cake and eating it because you can't deliver the same remit and deliver a profit. It just that is the bit that just makes no sense in the proposal. <coughs> that, in a sense, is, is the core that I was driving to. And, and it, having had roles that have had both both of those remits, if you like, the public service and the, and the purely commercial. But if you look at what the the, um, the government is laying out, not trying to change the role that Channel 4 plays, but proactively giving it the best set of tools to succeed in the market context that's emerging, um, protected remit and deeper pockets. So the idea being either that the markets, the, the, the external circumstances are going to make the investment at, at critical mass harder to sustain, and or that there are commercial opportunities that the channel will be investing in if it was able to raise private capital can't do that if it's state-owned, therefore some kind of privatisation and, and private capital is, uh, is the logical outcome. Um, it sounds as though each of those kind of tent poles of the argument you'd dispute. Absolutely, and also if you look at the scale of the 
um, industries that are operating globally now, any of these moves wouldn't move the dial. Um, you know, becoming part of um, the Sky Comcast world doesn't make you overnight uh, able to compete with Amazon or Apple. Um, those businesses, even Disney is dwarfed by those businesses, but you will be a very small rounding area on a global company and therefore be very difficult in my experience to necessarily fight for the capital for one local market in the way that the government seems to think. So they've not thought through what does it really mean if you're part of something bigger, if that is entity is controlled, for example, in the United States. It, it just sort of, it doesn't necessarily flow what they say that they are seeking. If Channel 4 was to become part of ITV, um, then that combined entity is no more able to compete with Amazon and Apple than, because the, than, it, it, it sort of, it actually makes no sense from an economic point of view. If you just look at the size of those entities versus the size that you'd be creating, it makes no difference. Um, it, <laughs> therefore, it makes l literally no sense. You'd be very generous with your time. We could talk for the rest of the day. I'm just going to round up on, on one thought. Um, uh, one of your predecessors, um, Michael Jackson, in his McTaggart in 2002, public service broadcasting is a battle standard we no longer need to rally to. The pointless juju stick of British broadcasting, which I think you've quoted in the past as well. Uh, compared to Mark Thompson, we're going to need public service broadcasting even more in the future than we do right now. Um, I think I know which side of the argument you're on, but I'd uh, uh, love to know your opinions on that. And in that context, given charter renewal, Channel 4 license renewal, all the things that are likely to hit us in the course of the next five plus years with manifestos getting written at some time and therefore intellectual heavy lifting needing doing some time now, because as we said earlier, we don't really have a topography as to how this all fits together and what needs to happen. Um, what should the industry be doing proactively now to try and map this out and try and get to the right to the best possible outcome given that this is about citizens and consumers and and the creative industry as a whole what can, what should we be doing now to help get to the best possible outcome i think what would help is that we had uh, to your point about topography a map of what we think the environment is settling down to one of the things about the industry that i really remember very clearly in the early 2000s was everyone was focused on we've got a fundamental distribution shift occurring from analog to digital and by comparison to where we are now that was quite simple but it felt quite complicated at the time we were changing fundamentally distribution uh, platforms the number of channels was exponentially exploding and we had to work out how to spread the economics of what we were doing across many many other many more, as it were, kind of points of consumption that had existed in the previous world. But we worked it through, and a lot of value was created through that for everyone. We're now in a much, much more complex environment in which uh, new models are disrupting constantly, and a lot of those models are uh, appear to be video-based, TikTok being the most recent example. And they're very disruptive and they're very consumptive of attention, particularly amongst young people. So I think what would help the most as a first step is that those of us who are participants in the market in the UK, as it were, came up with a manifesto of what we think the map is going to look like over the next five to ten years. And this is something that I think, therefore, Ofcom could use as their guide for how these licenses should be renewed over the next five to ten years. 
for me, when you read the papers and when you read the analysis, there is frankly far too much doom and gloom about you know the kind of loss of the younger audiences and uh, and the and the kind of implosion of, of the contract between the main uh, incumbent players and and their audiences, and we should flip it around the other way and say, look, what is it that we we do have? Where are the firm kind of joists in all of this, and how does the industry collaborate, you know, kind of with itself, in order to protect those key principles that we've been uh, talking about? And that that will take leadership. Uh, we need to shift. It's a, again, this is about politics. This is about shifting the debate from a defensive stance to a more uh, innovative, front-footed, forward-looking vision for how this whole environment can, can work. And it is not a binary discussion between us giving up, as it were, some of the birthright of our own edit editorial independence as a country in these media. Because we have seen with GB News and we're seeing with all these other uh, new entrants sort of what the agenda is from a political point of view. And we should be very wary of further loss of control uh, of our editorial levers as a, as a country. Uh, and as a final thought, we should be more shocked and frankly outraged that we've got a government who, who is so laissez-faire as to wish for that editorial independence to be sold uh, and, and to be, and to be, uh, and, and to be jeopardized in a way that is at risk right now. They're not here to respond to this, but they have had their own sessions. So uh, the conversations on uh, in, in aggregate, I think, will address these points. David, you've been enormously generous with your time. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks very much, John. In our next episode, we're joined from the US by Mark Thompson, ex-director general of the BBC and one of the most thoughtful advocates of public service broadcasting. He reflects on the challenges he faced in charting a course for the BBC and compares them to his tenure at the, as Chief Executive of the New York Times. He also had advice for those in leadership roles on how to get the best outcome in the future, and here's a taste of what he had to say. Well, to me, the most important thing is that the industry presents a compelling uh, vision of its own future. In the absence of such a vision, policymakers will come up with something or they will um, pretend to come up with something and really back back the status quo minus five percent or minus ten percent or plus two percent it's it'll be the same old same old and so i think for the bbc and channel four in particular coming up with compelling ideas for how they're going to change and meet the challenges they now face is, is, is the most important thing they can do. And I think one encouraging thing is, I have to say, I think both uh, the BBC and, 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 and Channel 4 have got great leaders at the moment. I think they've, got, uh, a, they've still got a lot of talent in both organisations. And I'd be confident that if they kind of seize the moment to, to tell their own story to the public and to the politicians, you know, honestly, my own experience of these things is you come into the room with a plan, it turns out nobody else is actually... Everyone else has got a list of grievances or complaints. Nobody else has got a plan. And your plan tends, in the end, to, to, to get through. You've been listening to Lens by British Screen Forum. My name is Pete Johnson, and I'm the CEO of British Screen Forum, where the best informed and most influential people in the UK screen sectors convene to interrogate issues of importance 
and influence policy and the thinking around policy. This podcast series is just one way in which we help our members frame the debate over the future of the UK screen sectors. If you'd like to find out more about our work or sign up for a future public-facing event, please visit our website at britishgreenforum.co.uk where you will also find an interactive timeline covering the key events, people and reports discussed in this series. Episodes in this series are released fortnightly and can be found on all major podcast platforms.